Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with a platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 17 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I'm joined by Tommy Monday of GameShark Performance and Boxing Science. How are you doing today, Tommy? Not too bad, thanks, mate. Are you? Yourself? Yeah, coping all right, mate. Coping all right. Um, so do you want to, for the listeners who've not heard, um, who don't know anything about you, do you want to give the listeners a little bit more of an intro into your background and why you do what you do? Uh, no worries. No, f- thanks very much for having me on, first of all. It's been uh, like a real privilege to be asked to come on and speak and just chat training, really. Like We're, we're all mad into it, aren't we? And we, we all like talking about it a lot. So... Um, uh, yeah, I'm Tommy. Um, I'm currently working for Manchester United Women FC as the assistant strength and conditioning coach with the women's first team and also the women's under-21s academy side. Uh, as alongside that, I do some, some one-to-one work with just a few footballers and that's under the heading of Game Shot Performance, which is something that I set up with my friends Sam and Chris and we deliver some, some physical work which me and Sam look after, and then some technical preparation work, which Chris, uh, who is a, who's a technical lead, he looks after more of that. suppose how I got into the strength and conditioning, I've, I used to box a lot when I was younger. So I did a lot of that, competed at it for a number of years within the Northwest, uh, out of Macclesfield Boys Boxing Club. And I think really it all started from just wanting to get myself as game and as fit as I possibly could. And I loved a scrap. And the, the fights that fascinated me were, were the Mickey Ward, Arturo Gatti and, and stuff like Jamie Moore and Matthew Macklin. Like I used to watch these fights a hell of an amount. And the limiting factor in the, these performances seemed to be the physicality and also like how bad they wanted it mentally, but really digging in. And being as game and as fit and as strong as you could is obviously a big part of boxing. And by logic, I suppose you look for, in terms of how I'm going to get myself like that, or as close to that as I can possibly be, you look to who is, who is the best at that. So you look to people like Manny Pacquiao or whoever, whoever's the fastest, whoever's the fittest. And then I suppose after that, you start looking, logic defies that you start looking towards the different sports. So who are the fittest athletes of the world? So you start looking at how do 10,000 meter runners train? You need to be fast, right? How do sprinters train? You need to be strong, right? How do powerlifters train? And you just get like, a lot of this starts on YouTube, but it's just a rabbit hole of how are these people the, the best in the world at what they do and how, how can I use that information to help me be better? So even stuff like how do crossfitters train, how do the Marines train, things like that. Um, so it's just started like purchasing books, like the essentials of champion conditioning, things like that, going on daft courses and things. Um, just little level ones and level twos in, in various different things and starting to visit different SNC coaches and getting to grips with right this whole idea of physical preparation is, is called strength and conditioning, I suppose. Um, around 15, 16, I was doing a, a lot of doing a lot of training for the boxing and stuff like that. And the a few of my dad's pals were running football teams and they wanted they asked whether it was for my benefit or their benefit, they asked, will you come down and do with a bit, a bit of the, the stuff you do with, with the boxes and the stuff you do as part of your boxing training? And, and a lot of that was just delivering a little bit of a warm-up and, or delivering a little bit of fitness work. 
and things like that. And then that progressed to doing my FA level two, uh, just because I wanted to get more coaching badges under my belt. And then starting to really, I got involved with a side in Sheffield called Wisewood Genius and started, I suppose, without knowing what to do or having a great idea. In my first year of uni, um, do it, delivering strength and conditioning to them. And that started as, as warm-ups and things like that. And, and, and as, I got, as I got better at it, getting a, a little bit of an understanding of how do I get them a little bit quicker, how do I get them a little bit fitter. And to be honest, like that, that, was, that was my first little thing that I did as a, in terms of like strength and conditioning. So going, going off that, um, wanting to be better at the boxing as well. I found out about boxing science, which was massive uh, from Alan Ruddock um, and Danny Wilson. And they, they were running an absolutely amazing programme in Sheffield. And I wanted to get involved with that as well. And that was one of the factors that led me to going to Sheffield Hallam Uni. And while still boxing, I got involved with that programme just to, to help me get better physically. And then once I knocked the boxing on the head, I was pestering Danny and Alan so much for different questions and just wanting to learn more, really. And I suppose that I pestered them enough that they gave me a bit of an internship, which was amazing. And I was absolutely buzzing. So all throughout my second year, um, I started helping them out which were in, in third year and fourth year of uni. And, and I absolutely like, loved it. Learned so much from Danny and Alan. Like, they're, they're absolutely amazing put so much time and effort into me which was fantastic and then alongside that doing different internships with Sheffield Wednesday Football Club um, going to work with uh, Tim Jarrett in Leeds who, who runs an amazing program up there with the university and then just spending whether it's days or weeks it with with different programs around Sheffield I was really lucky to be there in that sense so quite a long-winded answer but just really I suppose it comes it's, that's probably a similar answer to what a lot of people will give. It just comes from a fascination of how can you physically prepare the body better. Oh, yeah, 100%. There's a couple of things you said there that, again, I didn't jot these down uh, in the podcast questions that I sent to you, but just keen on your thoughts. Um, so the first one is, because when I boxed again, you sort of get, it's, a, it's almost a bit like the military, you just get fed this mantra, oh, yeah, it's all about being mentally tough, mentally tough. And when you're in that environment, you sort of go with it, like, yeah, I need to be mentally tough, mentally tough. But you never actually talk about what that actually means. And I think everyone's got a slightly different version of what their interpretation it means to them. So as a long-winded question, when I watch stuff like the SAS, uh, who dares wins, and they talk about being mentally tough, I think you can be as mentally tough as you want when, I don't know, you're holding 40 kilos above your head sandbag. But if your best overhead press is, say, 30 kilos, that mental toughness is irrelevant because you haven't got the physical buffer to allow you to dig deep. Um, so what's your interpretation of being mentally tough? And to what extent do you think it's a strength and conditioning or a technical coach's responsibility to develop that mental toughness? Oh, that's a, it's a really tough question. That I suppose that it's a sense of what does that look like? So you look at, you've got a group of 20 athletes and, and you, you get asked who is the, who is mentally the toughest out of all of these. And, I think the physical capacity to do it, but part of that to me comes down from being coachable as well. So even if an athlete really has the ability to to dig deep and really 
really push themselves in whether that's a running task or a circuit task, whatever you've given them. To me, if they're not coachable as well at the same time and they don't on the slower on the slower type movements and the more technical refined movements, if they're not coachable and they're not they're not open to change and they're not open to wanting to be better, no matter how hard they push themselves, that to me wouldn't say they're very mentally tough. Um in terms of whether it's an SNC coach's role to develop that within athletes, you have you have to make them robust, and you have to get them in a position where they can technically thrive. So, part of that journey to making them robust, yes, they will have to learn to dig deep at some point, whether that's an innate quality or something that can be taught. I think just exposure to finding things tough and exposure to being outside the comfort zone, whether that's learning something new or being challenged on something that's very familiar, I think that the SNC coach can provide that sort of stimulus mm-hmm. and constantly take outside athletes outside the comfort zone. That would help them be in a position where they can technically thrive. Quite a long <laughs> I'm going on a bit, aren't I? No, Quite a long all- but yeah, I think that it can. I think that it can be done. I don't think it should be a focal point of the program, though. No, I don't I, think your business equal should be. I need to make these athletes more mentally tough. Yeah, yeah, and the reason why I ask the question is because, as you said, there's so many differences between people's interpretation. Like, for example, um, I know in a podcast that I heard with uh, the head of GB Judo at the time, he said that GB Judo, for example, when it came to sparring matches, they would have they would tell the judges or the referees, they bring in the judges, um, the referees, sorry, and they would tell them to deliberately be harsh or more lenient towards one of the athletes just to see how the other athlete would respond because the other athlete would have no idea that the referee or referee was supposedly in on it. Um, you also mentioned, and I think every SNC coach goes through this, myself included, where you almost become a sponge and you, as you said, you want to read this book, do this course, get experience here, here, and here, which is great for us who really value this training side of things. How would you say a parent, a technical coach, or somebody who is not a strength and conditioning coach should go about working out what's just crap on social media and what's actually fundamentally good practice, if that makes sense? It's, it's tough because as a parent, you should want the best, best for your child. And 99% of parents, parents do, and they're absolutely fantastic. And they invest time and money into whether it's driving the kids around or they are paying for services and resources. As a parent, I think it's who doesn't know much about the sport or the task. I think it's very tough to identify what is fluff and what is honest best practice I think I think the UKCA accreditation is hopefully a good a good standpoint on whether someone is qualified to deliver strength and conditioning to your 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 child or not I think that it's it's not the be all and end all but I think that that, that would differentiate a, someone who would be in a better position to deliver best practice to your child or not. I think I'd advise parents to look for that mm-hmm. in terms of 
we have to looking out for strength and conditioning. But like I say, it's not the be all and end all. Yeah, it is a really tricky. Like you said, I uh, go on. And I think just being open to things as well as a parent, because they'll have things that worked for if if they've competed at sport before, they'll have things that worked for them, and they'll have people they know, and they'll have people they trust. And trust trust is going to be a big part of it, and and I think you can you can generally tell just if you're an okay judge of character who has got a genuine interest in making your child better at their sport and who has got a, a genuine interest of, well, a non-genuine interest, I suppose. Yeah, I like that. I, again, I appreciate I'm absolutely hammering you with questions I'm not prepared you for. Yeah. Um, but going back to the, um, I'm going to talk about visibility versus credibility. And as an SSC coach, balancing putting out content that is going to stand out and that's going to appeal to a certain market and get them into your funnel, if, if you will. So being visible, which there's obviously some practitioners who are unbelievably visible, uh, loads of tons of followers. But then you look at the actual content as an SSC coach and you're like, are you credible? Um, how is SSC coaches? So whether it's, I don't know, yourself with your game shop performance stuff, myself with, for example, calisthenics kids, balancing the stuff that's going to, look appealing but is also a best benefit to the people who need to see it if that question makes any sort of sense because to, to give a little bit of context to that the things that typically make athletes better aren't necessarily the stuff that looks great on social media as an example i think that there's been a, a good shift of towards what is best practice and what is good delivery i would hope that Obviously, you've, if you're going to get people into your funnel, like, for example, or, or like, like you put it there, you're going to get people into your funnel. First of all, that content has to be visible and it has to be eye-catching and, and it has to be something fun and exciting and engaging. If we take something like, a, I don't know, like an altitude landing off a box, that's, that might be best practice for a kid, but it's not. if you put that on social media, it probably doesn't look great. Off a small box, it, it doesn't look exciting and it doesn't look very tough or challenging either. But that probably is a really, really good stimulus for developing what you want to develop with a youth athlete. I think things like um, the Strength Lab Superheroes, um, Simon Brundish does an absolutely amazing job because he has nailed visibility and credibility because that is how we've branded that and put it together. Is, is amazing because it's exciting, it's visible, it's eye-catching, but it's also best practice. Mm -hmm. Likewise, if you've, if you've got something that's, that is fantastic and really develops you youth athletes, but it doesn't, it doesn't look very good, you're not going to get those athletes in in the first place. So you're not going to get a chance to even deliver your practice. So it's a really tough question all the time. I think you've got to stick to your principles. You've got to stick to, right, what is it I do? And what is it I want to do and what do I not do as well? So I, I've, I've put stuff on social media and like, and I'm, I'm still like relatively new to this. I've, as you can tell, I'm, I'm, only, I'm only 22. Like, so, but I've put stuff on and I thought, nah, that don't look great. Or like I've done a counter movement jump or something daft like that or a sprint drill. And I thought, nah, my foot's wrong there or my, my, my toes aren't into my shin or something like that. But really, does it matter? No. If any this lockdown's taught me that most things work so it a parent or a child or someone that i want to work with will not notice that 
Mm. And I will get the chance to, hopefully, if that person's engaged with it, hopefully they will, they will want to come in and they will, they will want to get better. And then I can deliver the best practice anyway. So as long as you're trying to be as credible as you can, I think the visibility probably comes second. Oh, I thought that was an absolutely superb answer. And again, Simon Brunch's <laughs> Strength Lab Superheroes, absolutely superb. I'll pop that in the show notes. Um, in regards to being in lockdown then, um, as a coach or even as athletes, what do you think are some of the key qualities that we can be looking to develop given these uh, weird and wonderful circumstances? So you can answer that, whether it's talking about your own coaching development or the athletes that you work with. So the the athletes that I work with, the girls have been absolutely fantastic. Like they've their season got cancelled uh, pretty early on, I think, in end of March and end of March. So pretty soon after we went into lockdown, their season got wrapped up by the FA, and they still had basically six weeks where if they weren't training, they weren't probably going to be doing too much, and they engaged really well with the the training content I put out there, and I think that. I was I was quite lenient whether they did it or not. And by being quite lenient and quite open, if they missed a session or they did something else, for example, they played football in the back garden with a brother instead of instead of doing the speed session or they, or they, play, they played badminton or they, they just felt like going for a run or they got nominated to do the 5K challenge, whatever. They, they, they told me that and they were, they were very approachable and they were, they were very honest. And that taught me that having that trust in your athletes and being open and being approachable and not being and, and trying to be quite understanding and quite empathetic with this situation understanding that they'll have days where they're motivated and, and not motivated as well that that taught me quite a lot that they will just putting the trust in the athletes because at the end of the day they're they're the ones doing the training and it's there and it's their training you're just you're just there to slightly facilitate the journey and it's, and you're not, and you're not really, you're not really nowhere near as important as you think because you're not very much in control of that situation. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think maybe this is just me talking about my own journey. Maybe this is similar for other SNC coaches, but I think you almost go through a learning curve, especially when you're just at university, where you're like, oh well, the most physically dominant athlete is gonna win all the time, and therefore I'm the most important piece of the puzzle. To thinking actually, well. As you said in a boxing example, if I'm as physically conditioned as I like, but I go up to someone as skilled as Floyd Mayweather, then the conditioning is almost irrelevant because he is technically better and I'm not as big a piece of the puzzle as I think. Um, how do you, you mentioned trust a couple of times there. Um, obviously, you've got a boxing background, both from a, uh, actually doing the sport and from being involved in strength and conditioning coach. How do you go about building that trust with your athletes? And do you find that's different in different sports or do you apply the same sort of principles? So I was really lucky with the boxing because the, 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 way, the way it worked while I was at um, uni, I do, I do boxing science in the mornings and deliver the strength conditioning. And then I got stuck in with the boxing coaching as well, which I'm not currently doing at the moment, but I really enjoyed and I was trying to get better at as well. So coaching the boxing in the evenings and going to uni in the day, that was, that was my days really. So I had all the lads were my pals as well. So they were all lads that I knew who, uh, who I was coaching, which was, which was great because we, we, had, we, had a, we already had a really good, really good bond. And I think they knew that I, could be, that I could be honest with them. And they knew that 
when I when they needed to push themselves and when when I need to push them as well and when they need to pull back and when they when I need to pull them back as well so that was that I never really had it where I'd have to build the trust it was hopefully because as well this is the other thing they trusted in Danny and Alan already because they're they're this top top lads and like they're the they're, they're clearly integral they're credible and then just by being associated with them you get you get a little bit more buy-in already rightly or wrongly with with the athletes that I work with now I think just trying not to just trying not to force it and I think that this this concept of buy-in and like obviously just take take it with a pinch of salt what I'm saying because it, it's I'm I'm still new to this, but this concept of buying and trying to build it and trying to force it, I'm I'm unsure about it sometimes. And I think I think if they the athletes can see that your primary goal is to make them better, and you're showing that, and you put in the effort, and you put the time with them, and you make it clear, you don't even have to show them deliberately, but you're just honest and integral, and you are genuinely trying to make them better. I think no matter what your personality. As long as you're pretty sound and you're pretty nice, I think you can probably get some good buy-in without having to really, really try it getting the buy-in. Just try it at being yeah. better at the job. And it, yeah, it, it's funny because it, there's obviously I'm not going to name specific uh, books or anything, but there's, there's there's books which have gone mad about coaching buying and as if it's this elaborate process. But at the end of the day, the key message of the books is basically don't be a dickhead and show that you care and people will like you and be more likely to do stuff for people they like. I do agree with you that you do hear a lot of, oh, it's all about the buying and yes, that's important, but almost like it's a light switch and I've either got it or I haven't um, and that there's some kind of more complicated process than simply being a decent uh, decent coach at the end of the day. Um, I'd hate to be at a point where, sorry, sorry. Um, no. I'd hate to be at a point where I was actively looking for how can I get by in how can I get by in I think the less that I for me the less that I try and think about it the the less that that would hopefully be a problem for me yeah I I couldn't agree more and I think as you said if you get to a point where you're actively looking for it you know prevention being better than a cure or that you'll probably you probably miss the mark to a certain degree hopefully like but in, in five years time Todd that my opinion might have completely changed on that. That's just where I currently stand with it now. And I've, I've re- I have read a few of these books and I th- I th- th- this, there is absolute gold dust in that. And I think that for some coaches, they do probably need that. But what I've been lucky with is, I was speaking to Lewis Cunningham about this the other day from, uh, from Middlesbrough. Um, we were saying that we probably, I've been really lucky to be around good coaches, mm. whether that's in the box or in the football. And you, if you've been under good coaches, you generally just copy what they do. Mm. And I've, <laughs> I've had that stuff like Brendan Warburton is from from Sheffield is yeah. one of my like mentors in in terms of the coaching. Just <laughs> I started coaching in the Yorkshire accent. Like you, you, you just pick up things. It sounds proper daft, and you, you just pick up things from people um, without even really noticing. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. It almost mannerisms, and before you know it, it's part of your repertoire without even realising. It's like, well, are you from Yorkshire? No, but... 
So diving more specifically into your boxing science stuff. So you mentioned how that uh, came about in your own boxing background. Uh, so we're going to get a little bit more specific and more technical. But just as an overview, uh, I'm a coach and I come to you and I'm like, right, I thought I knew about fitness because I've trained boxers for years. Actually, we're not getting the results in the ring. Help me out. Um, walk me through the process of uh, whether it's assessment or finding out what boxers weaknesses from a strength and conditioning perspective what does that process look like so we've we've got a pretty good robust testing battery what we're pretty happy with so essentially we're looking for the the physical limiting factors that that allow a boxer to punch as hard as they like as often as they like and when they like I suppose so broken down that's we're trying to get the boxers who are the fittest the fastest and also the strongest we're quite simply like oh, all this like reverse engineering stuff I absolutely love it like I know yeah. it's quite cliche, but that's what we're looking for so we're, we're looking for in a non-skillful task for example a counter movement jump how high can they jump uh, we're looking at how fit are they? Can they repeat and cover, re- recover from high-intensity efforts? But things like the 30-15 test on the treadmill, that'll be a key test as well. How fast are they in, in that sense? So we look at things like reactive strength indexes, and we also look at this within the punching action uh, in terms of a landmine punch test. And then we do, we do do more tests off the back of that. We look at their overhead squat, their single leg squats. How well do they move? Is there any restrictions that stop them from moving well? And if so, where would these translate into punching actions? And yeah, and then we compare them against, we've got about 500 data entries, which is, which is amazing. So we, we've, we can basically pull out of the data set. We know what an 18-year-old flyweight amateur should look like. We also know what a lightweight senior professional should look like. So we've got enough data and we just compare them against that. Are you any good? This is where you're strong. This is where you're not so strong. And then you, you, just, kind of, you just kind of match it up from there. What, what's helping you perform well? Let's make that better. What's okay. what's performing well? And Let's just, make that better. And just before we dive into, again, going more technical into that. So RSI, people have never heard of it. Um, you've done a brilliant presentation on YouTube, which I'm going to link in the show notes uh, for anyone that's interested. Uh, but what is RSI for boxing? And as a random example, I'm a boxing coach. I say to you, oh, but we're not jumping in the ring. We're not dealing with jumping athletes. Why, why do I care? So what is RSI? Why should I care? So uh, RSI, the reactive strength index, is basically within a drop jump or a pogo jump test, we're looking at how high can a boxer jump and how long does it take them in terms of ground contact time to jump that high. So essentially we're looking at um, impulse, which is jump height, and how long does it take them to to produce enough force to achieve that jump height. So we're looking at flight time over contact time. So essentially, you can improve your RSI by spending less time on the floor and developing said amount of force more quickly, or you can develop more force in the same time window on the floor and you can jump higher. So essentially, someone that's going to perform better in RSI is someone that's very, very springy. If we look at team sports, 
RSI is associated with top speed running and spending less time on the floor and achieving better stride lengths and frequencies. And we're looking at within short time frames how much athletes how much force athletes can produce, I suppose. And what was your next question? Sorry, Todd. Uh, my next question was, how would you justify sell that to a boxing coach who says, for example, that's great, but I'm dealing with boxers rather than jumping athletes? Yeah, so the limiting factor to RSI is primarily ankle stiffness because no matter how much force gets produced through the entire chain, if the ankle can't handle that, I suppose, then some of that force gets leaked. And I, I use leaked with um, inverted commas. Um, we know from research and from practice as well that punching hard depends on a lot of impulse through the lower body. And to punch hard, you need to do it quickly, otherwise the opportunity is gone. So we know that the physic physically and physiologically, the limiting factors to punching hard can be seen within this movement. Even though they're not jumping, force is transmitted in slightly different directions. The time frames of the movement and the joint actions and where the where the force is coming from are dictated to by similar qualities as this. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's that's spot on, mate. Spot on again. It wasn't me uh, trying to be awkward with the questions. I just like thinking up these uh, scenarios in my head. Um, so let's say, for example, you'll have. I was thinking whether to name names or not, but you'll have boxers who can punch very hard, but they're what I would probably describe as uh, maybe a banger or a concussive puncher, but they're not necessarily the quickest. And you'll also have boxers who are lightning fast. You don't even see the punch coming and it's more that you didn't see it coming. Therefore it's caused some damage. How would you expect those two boxers to present in terms of their RSIs, if that makes sense? So let's say they both punch, they both have reasonably good knockout ratios, but box A tends to be more of a stoppage kind of guy. Uh, not necessarily lightning fast, but a bit of a decent dig. Boxer B, lightning fast, you don't see the punches coming. So they both have good, same knockout ratios, but achieve those knockouts in different ways. Would you expect to see any difference if you were to test, take them through your testing battery? So I'm going to go through two scenarios, I think. So if we had a scenario where, which is the most likely outcome what I'd expect, I would expect that a lighter, faster boxer and someone who, who throws a lot of punches, throws them very, very quickly, would have a better RSI. Mm -hmm. Because the ankle stiffness and the time they need to take to produce said amount of force isn't probably too long. That would be my prediction. If they both had the same RSI, I would expect that boxer B would spend a lot less time on the floor, but probably not jump as high. Equal RSI, the boxer A would jump a lot higher, but take a little bit longer to produce that force. That's in, just in terms of physio, physical yeah. limiting factors. Yeah, and again, no what, sorry. No, go on. Now, no, ma no matter what, if neither is technically that good, and then they're probably not going to punch very hard. And likewise, they can punch very, very hard just by being technically fantastic. The timing, yeah. everything around it being superb, and the, the intent and dig behind it can be fantastic without having 
the phys- physical capacity. So the way I see it, if you improve your physical capacity, you improve your RSI, you improve your force production, it's, you're just adding a little bit more to the puzzle. Mm. Even if, you, if, you're, and if you're technically good already, you're probably just increasing your chances of being better. That's how I sort of see it. So it's, not, it's probably not going to do you any harm. that's funny like that it just reminds that's like a comprehensive answer and then you get to it's like but will i punch like deontay wilder after this eight week block of (laughs) it probably won't do you any harm it's just that's the most concrete answer i can give you um so again with again uh, another difficult question i guess so using those same boxer a boxer b we spoke about reverse engineering Mm. do you think you would and again i appreciate this is more of a hypothetical question do you think you would get more return from investment working on uh, the boxer's weakness in this RSI example or the boxer's strength? That's my first part of the question. And the second part is, have you got any ideas in your head as to how that might fit together where you're trying to make their strength a super strength and then try and reduce the extent to which their weakness is a weakness, if that question makes sense? Yeah, yeah. Um... Stuart McMillan on the Altis podcast uh, with Pace of Performance the other day, that he absolutely nailed this for me. And he said that working on their strengths closer to competition, they'll draw a lot of confidence from. And they'll also enjoy, they'll enjoy the training. Happy athletes are dangerous af- athlete, And also they'll probably get more return from because that sort of defines them as an athlete. So this concept of really turning the strengths into super strengths around competition and turning the weaknesses into strengths away from competition, I really like because I think that it probably makes an athlete tick. Also, athletes tend to like things more what they're good at. So if I just take like the girls this year, the ones who have got the best counter movement jumps are very concerned about their counter movement jump scores. Likewise, the ones who've got the best RSIs and not necessarily the best counter movement jumps, they're concerned about their RSI score. So if we take the, the girl who's got the best RSI score, she loves knowing what her RSI score is. So if that improves, she can take so much confidence from that. If she was a boxer and she was concerned about that and she, she, she looks at a testing sheet, she instantly looks to RSI, that's gone up. She, the confidence that she will take from that will outweigh even the physical benefit just because she knows she's in a good place. Or she, she knows she's in a good place. Likewise, like, like I say, that. They, they'll probably look to what they're best at first. For me, that, that's that's how I'd say it as well. So there, there's the there's the mental standpoint and the, um, the psychological standpoint. And if you, as a coach, place a lot of emphasis on that as well and say this is a, a key performance indicator for you, this defines you as an athlete. This is your strength. We're going to work on that. They'll they'll that confidence just flows. Yeah. From a physical from a physical standpoint, I would definitely agree that the this will this will probably attacking their strengths and making them super strengths will, will probably make them better. Like we've got, we've got boxers who are probably never going to be that strong. They're strong enough, but they draw a lot of confidence. They like the explosive work. They feel good and it makes them train better as well. And if you get them technically training better and technically feeling better during training sessions, then I think you're flying really. Cause you're not, you're not just aiming to get them better in competition. You're also, trying to give them the capacity where they can technically thrive in their technical work and whether that's sparring, whether it's just pads, whether it's bags, shadow, whatever, you, you, that's, that's more pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. And I, I think you always know you're speaking with an experienced coach when they realize it's not just about the physical, like 
yeah. even if you look into, I don't know if you've seen much of work, um, Mike Tashira's work with powerlifters and reactive training systems. And uh, he basically says like stuff like a lot of times we obsess over details that don't make that much difference. But if the athlete perceives it to make a difference, then it does make a difference. So like, I couldn't agree more when you say, look, if an athlete's happy, then regardless of whether anything physical has changed, no one wants to be working on something they're rubbish at two weeks from the biggest fight of their life. I, th- I think as well on, on the back of that, if you, if you've got something that's really important to that athlete and that, for example, they, they, they probably take the most, most athlete, most boxers would probably take the most confidence from in, improving on their fitness assessments. That, that's what I would think. Yeah. If, if you double that value and you say, if you were to brush over and say, all oh, right, yeah, yeah, it's gone up 5%, whatever, you 30, 15 score. If you were to brush over it, then that, that loses half its effectiveness. If you go to them like, wow, look how much this has improved. And, and you can show them video clips, you can show them Word documents, you can show them Excel graphs and everything. You place more value on that. That's just more confidence for that athlete. And you, you do, you're doubling the effect of that 5% increase in fitness. And then that's where they start coming out with things like, oh, I'm in the best shape of my life. Yeah. They I, do, well. do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mike Tyson, retirement 53, best shape he's ever been in. But <laughs> Um, that's also why I loved your plyometric present uh, RSI presentation. Just because when you're showing drop jumps, yeah, it might tweak with athletes or early adopters and actively looking for their problems to be solved. But as soon as you've got a video of I don't know Pete McGrail two phase attacks and the ankle's not buckling, all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, this uh, this S and C coach might actually uh, know what he's on about. Yeah, yeah, potentially. I don't know. <laughs> I'm well, trying. Yeah, that's the uh, the lies I might be telling to myself. Who knows. Um, in, re- in regards to, so we've spoken a little bit about reverse engineering, training strengths and weaknesses. Uh, something we spoke off air about, which I really liked and we'll get into, is uh, energy system training for boxers. So you mentioned when you were training your footballers that um, you were sort of uh, approached, given your boxing experience and the whole sort of um, the outside view that boxers potentially could be some of the fittest athletes. How do you develop a conditioned boxer at boxing science so this the, alan alan would give you a miles better answer than me and i, I it's it's a weaker area of mine but I'd, 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 i can give it an i can give it an okay go i i would most of the time your boxer looks like a uh an endurance athlete whether that's a product of their boxing training or their conditioning training Typically, it, this gets thrown, thrown around a lot, but typically your boxer does 10K road runs, things like that. And I, th- I, I think that this has shifted. I think that in the past 10 years, I think you've got a lot more boxers going up to the track and things like that, uh, which, which is excellent because we're, we're, sh- we're shifting to, towards more. Um, we do sprint interval training. That's one of the first things we do with, with our boxers when they first come in. And they typically don't perform too well on it because they're not capable of producing these really, really high intensities and they're not cap- they can't coordinate and they can't, they can't get the intent and they don't know how it feels to sprint and dig and switch on and be twitching explosives and rapid. So that, unlocking that potential can be just a massive, massive gain into their boxing performance because rather than their, let's say their peak performance intensity and this is represented by an amount of punches, which is equivalent to sprinting this fast. You've just raised that there. So now when they work at this intensity, this is more sub-maximal. 
regardless of where aerobic fitness is. So th- this, is, this is starting to get into the concept of like anaerobic speeds of reserves and stuff like that. But as soon as you lift the absolute intensity someone can perform at, you, you make everything else more sub-maximal. And when you start to look at repeating and recovering that, obviously that's where the aerobic system and your buffering capacity and things like that, that comes in. So what I, what I would argue is that any, any boxing athlete, if they can't, no matter how you express that force, probably the best way to express it is through sprinting. And, and probably the best way is to express that through sprinting on the Woodway curve because just remove that impact. But if they can't do that, you're probably missing out on quite a bit. Now, we, we've had like situations where we've, we had um, boxers who've come in and they're like, if they're more towards the end of their career, you're probably going to find it really hard to develop that with them. So, <laughs> um, I'm, I could, this word low hanging fruit always springs to mind, but sounds daft, but you you can probably get them going back to the super strength thing before if they're really good at endurance then just carry on working at endurance but if you've got a lot of more time to work with someone like Danny and Alan have done an amazing job with Jordan Gill like mm. it turned him into a high intensity athlete and Jordan says now he feels like a, a 400 800 meter runner mm-hmm. and Alan would argue that he says that that is probably what the physiological profile of a boxer should there or thereabouts reflect. Like, when you look at the 800-meter runners, they're capable of running seriously, seriously fast. But then they've got the aerobic capacity to be able to repeat that as well. And then as you get further further away from that, then your maximal sprint speed becomes less of a limiting factor. Mm-hmm. Would, that, would that sort of make sense? Like, yeah, spot on. Funny you used to say that because the... Um... The a chap who I interned under, uh, Mark Campbell, who I believe you've uh, had deliver stuff for uh, you guys at Boxing Science, he said one of the most impressive feats of athleticism he's ever seen, bearing in mind he's worked with GB boxers, he's worked with GB divers, he's worked with international uh, rugby teams. He said the f- uh, best feat of athleticism he ever saw was uh, David Radisha's 800-meter world record uh, in London mm. 2012. So I think that answer sounds spot on. Um, you mentioned, so let's say I give you, I'll give you two options. Yeah, I can either give you a boxer who is uh, lightning quick, explosive, but let's just say not very fit, or I give you a boxer who is fit, whatever that means to them, but not very fast. Which boxer would you prefer to have coming in at the start of training camp? So I'd probably, you fit a boxer, and my answer like, I reckon if you ask me this again in 10 minutes' time, it's probably going to change. But <laughs> I would say that Danny, Danny nails this. As soon as you get the, the boxer coming, um, coming in to, ca- like, to camp, there's a massive spike in training load. I would say that your fitter boxer with a better VOT max would probably be better able to tolerate that. So just because they're able to recover, they're able to go again, not only within sessions and between sessions. However, on the flip side of the coin, it's probably harder to... If you take a kid at maybe like 20, something like that, 20, 21, 22, same age as me now, it's probably harder to make him faster and more explosive and stronger than it is to make you fitter... No, than it is to make you faster, you're stronger, you're more explosive boxer, fitter. Yeah. If that makes sense. So it all depends. I think if you if, if we... It's, it's probably easier to make your, yeah, like I say, it's probably easier to make your faster boxer 
fit than it is to make you fitter boxer, more endurance type. Yeah. Fast. But it can be done. It can be it can be done both ways. It depends on what do you place value on, what's important to that athlete as well. Like if 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 they if they take a lot of confidence from being really good on the five Ks and you've not got that long to work with them, probably probably keep them what they're good at as well. And they and then that's where you adjust it over time. Yeah, I thought yes, yes, I think your answer reflects actually how difficult that question is. I remember looking at um it was, I think it was a podcast with a guy called Chris Hinshaw and he talks about whether you've got an athlete, as we said there, who is fit but not fast, fast but not fit, and saying that being fast, as you said, you need a coordinated athlete, you need an athlete with good ranges of motion, you need an athlete with good levels of strength to be able to express that force. I mean, just as a personal anecdote, like I remember running the 400 metres and trying to improve my 400 metre score uh, coming off the back of my powerlifting. And I could nail a pretty good 400 meter time, but it took me about three days to recover. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think it's easier to get somebody fitter because you're like, we're just going to do more of this stuff um, that you're already technically good at. We just need to develop it for longer. But as you said, same as you, mate, ask me in 10 minutes, I may well change my answer. Um, you did your, I could be wrong with this, but you did either your master's or your dissertation on velocity-based training. Is that right? Yeah, that's uh, that, that's what I looked at for... for I ended up, um, I did it from uh, undergraduate and then I like ran out of ideas for, or I didn't have any ideas for my, for my master's one. So I just did this like, um, slightly the same study again, but better. And I think the two together made, obviously it's not published or anything like that, but the two together made for quite an interesting little piece. So I looked at the trap bar deadlift and I, I really enjoyed this. I really got stuck into it. I looked at the trap bar deadlift and I wanted to know that with boxers, what is the optimal load relative to their one rep max to work at for improving impulse and rate of force development. So essentially what is rather than looking at this has look, been looked at in power a lot, but power force time velocity isn't really a limiting factor to punch performance impulse and rate of force development is. So I wanted to look at for impulse and rate of force development, what is the optimal load to work at? So we, we got them lifting at um, 30, 40, 50, 60, up to 90% one rep max, doing three reps of it. And we also got the gym aware strapped to, to it as well. So even if you didn't know your optimal relative load, you'd, you'd have a velocity range to work at. And I think, I think it was about, for rate of force development, it was between 30 and 40, between, no, sorry, in the trap bar deadlift study, it was between 30 and 60% of rate of of your one rep max is optimal for rate of force development. So that was my conclusion. Obviously, I wasn't I wasn't able to outright prove this with stats, but that was my observation as well. And then in my second study for my masters, with the trap bar deadlift, you have to stop at the top. So immediately, you by not jumping, you're limiting the force production and you're limiting the rate of force development, and that isn't really a great to, to lift a light load really fast but then stop at the end that isn't it's not a very coordinated skill it doesn't look great it doesn't feel great to an athlete so then we looked at alright in a trap bar jump which I know Chris Toombs uses a lot and I picked up from him so trap bar jump tense up jive up from the floor if we go at the equal loads up we work between 30, 40, 50 and 60% one rep max what is um we looked at what is the optimal load for optimizing this rate of force development. And then what was interesting is we found that 
between 30, same again, between 30 and 40% of the trap bar deadlift on RM. If you jump with that, that's optimal for rate of force development. But it varies from athlete to athlete, but as a general rule of thumb. And then that's also about half of the athlete's jump height as well. So if you work at, if you can jump 40 centimetres and then you load up the barbell till you can jump with 20 centimetres, you're probably in a good position for developing rate of force development. The other interesting thing off the back of it as well, I compared the two studies and then I looked at what is the difference between 70 and 90% of in terms of peak force, which is what we'd associate with max strength work. And there wasn't a significant difference between lifting 70% of your one rep max and 90%. So essentially, off the back of that, I, I, it left me with a question, can we develop max strength with 70% one RM, with 80% one RM, is there that need, as long as we're lifting it as quick as we can with gym aware, is there that need to go to 90%, 100%? That, that, that was the question I was left with it. And that's a discussion for another day. But, and then I looked at it again, the two studies together, and I compared 90% trap bar deadlift, which is your highest peak force values. And then I compared 50, 40 and 50% and 60% trap bar jump. You see more peak force in 50 and 60% trap bar jump where I think you're jumping about 25% of your max height. So you're, you're, you see more peak force in the 50 and 60% trap bar jump than you do in the 90% trap bar deadlift. So my argument is off the back of that, even though it's 50 and 60%, that's a stimulus for developing max strength and max, max force to get to that point where you can safely jump with that is probably quite challenging. Mm-hmm. But with 40 and 50% of your trap bar deadlift, you can probably get an athlete jumping in and you know that's a good stimulus for developing maximum force. So we've got the jump height. So if you don't know your 1RMs, you can go off your jump height. We can also go off velocity as well. This is around 0.9 to 1.1 meters per second. That seems to be a really good zone for developing meter force development. And... Also, we've got the load as well. So if you've got neither of those things, just see how much can you lift and then write half it and I'll jump with it. So that's a, that's a, pretty, good, that's a pretty good indicator. So I, I, the two studies together, I was, I was like, I was pretty pleased with it by the end because I had, some, I had some okay answers and some okay questions off the back of it to generally know where, where we are about so- the right line. And so my key take comes from that, if I've understood you correctly, because this is something I've always wondered, is so firstly, in terms of strength development, arguably, there's no need to ever go above 90%, if I understand that correctly. Um, I didn't measure 100. Uh, the, f- the thing is, with, with, with really heavy loads, like you get, you, you're, practicing, you're practicing the tension, you, and, and there's, there's so much benefit to going between between 95 and 100%. There's, there's like structural adaptations, there's confidence, there's all things, there's set PRs, great, great stuff. But what, what, I, what I found was the difference between 70 and 90%, if you lift that weight as, far as, you, as fast as you can, there's no significant difference in the force production. And this is, so, just, this is just in lifts. Is this an explosive lift or is it something that's gone? Is this a trap bar jump or is this just a trap bar deadlift? But you wouldn't get off the floor with above 60% on a trap bar that's, jump. That's, yeah. that's actually really useful to know because obviously, well, just using myself as an example, uh, a lot of people, and I, I'm sure you find this, that 
as soon as you can't get the feedback of a device or something, then all of a sudden velocity-based training requires an athlete to really be motivated, especially if, I don't know, your remote program. So knowing that you're not going to get off the floor with more than 60% is actually a really useful indicator for those who don't train with velocity-based equipment. There or thereabouts, that's a general rule of thumb. I think we had one lad who did get off, did get about nine centimetres off the floor with 60%, but that was more just because um, he was quite explosive and he just wasn't great at heavy loads. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because in my head I'm doing the maths now and I'm thinking, right, as soon as gym's reopened, let me load up the trap bar with what's probably going to be a lot less than 50% of my old 1RMs and see if I can get off the floor. Yeah, I've, I I would I would think that now we can we can use that like so. If you've got if you've got a set of dumbbells or if you were to have two twenty four kettlebells and you're jumping with them, you're probably gonna do an okay job of because you're probably hitting some good peak force values. So you're probably doing an okay job of protecting your rate of force development and your exposure to some kind of peak force because you're hitting similar positions as the deadlift you're probably doing an okay job i would argue so. funny enough that's where my next question is going to go because if it's only 50 to 60 percent and if you're not training powerlifters like that's a load that's not beyond all realm of possibility between like even if you i don't know say you've got a sibling and you put them on your back and you do a squat jump or something silly yeah. like that's going to put you in the ballpark somewhere. And it's certainly going to be a lot better than, you know, these death by reps, body weight programs that I see people put out. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, so even, even um, if you've got two 10 kilo dumbbells, you're, and you can trap bar deadlift one, 100 kilos. Let's say you're a junior athlete and you've got two 10 kilo dumbbells. If you jump with that load, that's 20%. Only 10% off what we know is the optimal zone hmm. for rate of force development. So, and also, the other thing I will say that this can vary from athlete to athlete. So, athletes that were slightly more weighted to, towards force production tended to be better as the weight got heavier. And then the, athlete, the athletes that were weighted towards velocity tended to be better as the weights were lighter in terms of relative to their one RM. But like, like I say, if you've, got, if you've got two 10 kilo dumbbells, you've got two 15 kilo dumbbells and you jump with that load, you're probably in a pretty good position for rate of force development and force production. Yeah. I would say. I like that a lot. And again, um, I think a lot of athletes lose their mind because they think I have to back squat during lockdown because my strength conditioning program says back squat when actually, as you said, you can actually achieve those loads or so those adaptations quite handily with a lot less load than you arguably uh, arguably need uh, the one question or the couple of questions i've got uh, that i haven't asked yet was you mentioned about youth athletes there um now i know at boxing science you're big on sprint interval training and high intensity interval training um to what extent would you change or keep the same energy system type approach to a youth boxer so i'm talking just for context uh, a pre-adolescent youth boxer so let's say i don't know uh 12 13 years and below to what extent would their energy system or strength and conditioning program look different to an adult boxer? I think you um, you see it as just more long term. So, where if our thirteen-year-old boxer is, let's let's say we've got a thirteen-year-old, he's had twenty bouts or something like that. It's Thursday. 
he's boxing on Saturday, we're probably less bothered about tapering him off than we would be someone who's someone who's 21 and is having a pro debut, some, something like that. So you see it as more long-term, just and, and each session is an opportunity to build this athlete up, make him robust, make him, make him better at, at their sport, really. So I suppose you're less concerned about what's happening in the short term. Even though you are, you still want them to, you still want them to succeed and do really well, but you don't mind, you, 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 don't, you don't mind if short term doesn't go too well, I suppose, because long term, that's what you're after. At the end of the day, that's we're, we're wanting to develop great senior boxers. That's the that's the aim of the program. And uh, what was your other question? Sorry, Todd. Uh, to what extent would energy systems uh, change? So just to give a little bit of uh, background or a little bit of uh, thinking time. So uh, listeners who may or may not be aware, um, kids tend to be aerobic animals. Their anaerobic systems aren't that well developed, but they can go seemingly all day, as any parent will testify. Um, so their anaerobic systems aren't that well developed. And I don't know how well this has been uh, researched compared to an adult control group. Uh, but the question was, to what extent would an energy systems program for a boxer change if they're, say, a young boxer, let's say 12 and below versus an adult boxer? I don't think we've, I don't think this is something we've really considered because we remember that even though we're like you, you want to develop a great athlete and it's quite general at first and it's we do a lot more things that are considered athletic rather than specialised to boxing with the youth, the youth athletes but I don't think that we've really considered it because the demands of the sport are still the same like you've got to be fast you've got to be fit I would say that I'd, I would rather my athlete at a young age develops their ability to be twitching to know what it feels like to sprint. Like if they've never sprinted, and and also like the the ones who really struggle are the ones who haven't played football, haven't played rugby, they because they don't know what it feels like to switch and and and, and be being um, be anaerobic and twitching. They don't know what it feels like to to switch on so to coordinate that sprinting to be able to achieve high intensity adaptations from your conditioning work. That's that's probably quite tough. So. I'd I'd say like learning to sprint around growth spurt time, probably managing that as well. Um, whether you manage volume, whether you, whether you t- like tailor off the volume a little bit and you just work for intensity or, or vice versa. I suppose you work with work, work with what's in front of you. But in the past, we've always done more sprinting than we've done um then we've done high intensity conditioning work because I suppose they're getting a lot of that from the boxing anyway. So you you're filling in the gaps. And then also like I I keep going back to this before, like it's probably easier to make a fit athlete uh, a fast athlete fit rather than a fit athlete fast. And when when you I, I don't know how much of this is backed up backed up by the science, but when you're around like 12 to 16, isn't that when you start to shape what you look like an athlete long term? Is that right? Like, and you start looking at looking at how your your fiber types generally start to set, and you start yeah. to, when you start to specialize and how physiologically you look. And I think it. Am I right in saying that obviously part of that is genetic, but um, part of that is shaped by what you do there's as well, cert- isn't it? Yeah, there's certainly a coordination, like Ian. In Rodri Lloyd's book, uh, Strength and Conditioning for the Youth Athlete, he talks about synaptic pruning, which is basically the way that the brain talks to each other. 
uh, the, sorry, the parts of the brain talk to each other. And basically, um, the more crosstalk you have, so the more the different parts of the brain talk to each other uh, during that pre-adolescent phase, the more likely it is that the brain will decide to hold on to those skills moving forward. So I completely agree in terms of making the coordination your priority, because I've worked with loads of kids, especially in a PE setting, and you'd be amazed at some of the sprinting mechanics. Like one of the schools I worked with, they had um, the cover of the sports day brochure, if you want to call it that. And there was kids starting with left arm forward and left foot forward. Yeah. And you're like, how has your brain decided that that is the optimum way to run as fast as physically possible? Um, so getting in those coordination tasks while you've still got, uh, not calling it a window of opportunity, but whether you've, where you've got an accelerated period of learning new skills, uh, I guess. Um, so yeah, I'd completely agree. And it's, it's interesting. I personally don't think there's enough research on it but from what i've seen there was a decent paper presented at the child champion conference in 2019 which had um i believe it was their youth young kids and adults doing a 10 second on the minute every minute max peak power on a watt bike and basically um again for the people who are listening to this rather than watching it it just completely dropped off a cliff for adults uh but for the kids literally like rep after rep was pretty much the same whereas the adults was so powerful or too powerful in order to recover sufficiently within the uh, rest of the minute time. So yeah, that's, it's interesting. And I completely agree with you. It's an area that as far as energy systems training is concerned, does require a lot more research in my opinion. We've, I've not, I've not looked into that nowhere near enough and I've, I've not, I've not considered it, but I, and I think as well, like do, do I probably need to consider it too much? Like you, you work, you work with what's in front of you and, and, and also kick the, the kids that we've worked with when we've put on our youth sessions, they, they love the, they love being fast. They love being fast and they love being out, a lot more than they love being out of breath. So <laughs> that's another thing to consider as well, isn't it? Like, yeah. Yeah. It's spot on. Um, I feel like I was going to say something else there in relation to that, but I feel like you've uh, kind of stolen the point there, but like you said, if you can develop those skills, develop those skills early. And also as that was what I was going to say in regards to plugging the gaps, if you go to boxing clubs up and down the country, there's a strong chance you're going to see a lot of uh, conditioning type work, which just generally gets people out of breath. What you're probably not going to see is long rest periods where you're looking for maximum physical output in say that 10 to 30 second burst and then a mm. five to 10 minute rest. You're probably not going to see that mainly because people are paying for say an hour and a half session and you just can't afford to be resting five, 10 minutes between an explosive effort. And, and it's, someone did a tweet about this the other day, and saying that like true speed work needs needs to be needs to have five to ten minutes of rest. And like I I, I can't see how realistically you can you can get that without your kids losing interest. And yeah. like so th- th- that that would that would dictate to me like how can you creatively come up with ways of of getting them working at high intensities and being able to repeat them as well and and so that that doesn't drop so yeah and i think with a lot of kids the the growth spurt will almost take care of the improved um sprinting speeds themselves like a friend of mine works uh, for a company that tests kids up and down the country for athletic prowess and basically with no strength conditioning whatsoever kids improve just because of obviously the growth spurt and then the interesting yeah. thing for them is then seeing where, where snc is concerned what improvements are bigger than the smallest worthwhile change that you would expect to see just by simply kids getting older um Mm. so i think if you improve a kid's coordination 
it almost it doesn't even have to be sprint specific coordination like one of the cpd events i went to with uh jared deacon who's uh um went to the commonwealth i think he's four by four or four by one um hundred and he said they literally he went to a school in the northeast and just had kids touch their left hand to their right foot right hand to right foot and then the same but behind their body and he said that's his sprinting assessment and he said he had a hundred kids three kids could coordinate that movement and he said right before we even talk about sprint mechanics do kids know how to hop how to skip how to jump because that's where the low-hanging fruit is going to lie in terms of getting kids faster because they just get more coordinated yeah yeah that's that, that's first word of that that's mad uh, i like it though. i like it i I'd, I'd love to i'd love to discuss that more it also shows how snc we as snc coaches can almost get lose ourselves within specific stuff so i need to get them faster therefore i need to get them sprinting inside but if he doesn't know his ass from his elbow then saying <laughs> right we need to pull your toe up whilst we're looking at this position whilst we've got this shin angle and obviously all that goes out the window yeah the think, uh, uh oh, go on. Oh, go on. I, I was going to say that the, con- the constraints hopefully play a big role in that as well like if you, if you can if you can do it in disguise like so this is why things like the wicket runs and and, and and stuff like that. They're 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 great pieces of kit on there. Well, I mean, we're got we're going off slightly off tangent, but I think that that will that also has the job of highlighting who is coordinated as well. And I think you you can you can pick pick those things out as well, can't you? Yeah, tangent's good. Funny enough, the um, I think it was episode thirteen. I spoke to a guy called Tom Green, who's uh, head of athletic development at uh, a school in the southwest, and he basically had two. Uh, cohorts they think they might be year seven year eight and basically one cohort did like what we would call more traditional snc in terms of sprint mechanics um a skips b skips a proper speed program if you will he had his other cohort literally just play games like tag uh rounders and stuff that is going to drive intent in children and basically uh said he still needs someone to do the uh statistics for him but just looking at the times that kids got in and the how much better they got kids got better by games just because there was an intent to want to be the fastest kid whereas you know talking about shin angles and sprinting 10 meters and you know kids just switch off intense massive that's why that's why i'm so big on the velocity based training that if i can't do that i'm i'm and i'm working in the one-to-one scenarios then then um then then it's the my jump up a little bit more time consuming but even on the as much feedback as you can get, whether it's a jump mat, um, whether it's timing gates, whether it, even a stopwatch is, I, I've I've had the stopwatch out loads this season, because even though I know it's not the most accurate thing in the world, I know it gets intent out of them, and we, we do like flying ten meter sprints where they'll have a twenty meter running, and then then it's how quick can you get from A to B? I'm stood at the side with a stopwatch. <laughs> like sometimes on way out, I know I know I am, but. Over over the course of the season, looking at averages, they've they've gone down, and mm. that's that's been that's been massive. Just forgetting, they they know that if they get a one point four, they're like oh, and then they know if they if they get a, a one point two, they're oh, buzzing, and then to get that one point two again on the flying ten or something like that on my stopwatch, they just do what they did last time, and they just do do whatever they were thinking about last time, whether whatever I told them or whether pretty much it's going to be usually what they've told themselves mm. to make himself quicker. And they're just going to do that again. Yeah. And then I've not had to say it again. I've got the antenna out of them. I've got what I wanted out of them. And, and also they're, they're enjoying it. And I found with the girls that they, they love the numbers. They mm. look, they, they're, they're all bright girls as well. And they, they, they love, 
they love knowing. The, the, there's that thing about knowledge of results and feedback of results and stuff like that. Whatever it is, I don't really know, but they, they love knowing what they've got. They love knowing what how they've done and how that influences our programme as well. So. No, spot on, spot on. Um, I'm also wary of taking up uh, too much of your time, mate. Um, the the one question I've got left, uh, well, a couple of questions before I got left. Uh, the first one is, if you could spend a period of time with uh, a coach and their athletes, who would you want to spend time with and why? I, I've, I've really been a big fan of the juggernaut shunt stuff and the watching they they were putting out quite a lot of fly on the wall stuff where they were coaching their weightlifters and the powerlifters and I think the the stuff they put out for years has been absolutely fantastic. So Max Aita and Chad Wesley Smith and I loved I love watching them coach on the on the YouTube videos and watching the same videos back multiple times and they I don't know how much they're thinking about their coaching because they're at a, they're at a level where they they can just do it now. But one of the things Max Aita said he was like with a do it with someone doing a power clean and he went do it again but do it better <laughs> and he tidied it up and it's like how was how was how was that worked and but saying saying that to someone right let's do it again but let's do it better i've like tried that since and that works <laughs> and like i can't, can't say why it works but it's like and sometimes that a little bit of a sigh or like watching them coach like even a sigh or a tut or just saying nothing has such a big impact so that that's when to say it what to say it and and being very calm as well that's especially in the weight room I think that's been massive in terms of um, on the pitch sorry I know you said one no, coach name as many as you want if you want to name a boxing coach as well like, I, I don't know just jumping in I'd, I'd love to see someone like Freddie Roach or Mayweather Senior just to see yeah. what they do but any, any yeah. coach doesn't even have to be SSC definitely I think in a similar style to that would be like someone like Rob McCracken someone like that and then Stuart McMillan working with the Altist setup and Jonas Dodi, um, how they coach their sprinters is absolutely fascinating. And the stuff they're getting into where it's considering how they cue an athlete based on their physiological profile. So if they've got someone with a really good RSI, like bounces down the track, they cue them to bounce. And if they've got someone that's more hamstring dominant and pulls their way down the track, they cue them to pull. That's, that stuff's amazing. I, I, I think that's I think that's really, really, really good stuff. And I'd lo- I'd love to learn a lot more about that. Yeah, it's funny when you talk about um, like changing your mind every ten minutes. Like sometimes I hear stuff like that, I'm like, whoa, that's amazing. There's really a science behind it. And then you hear stuff like, yeah, that, but better. And you're like, is this coaching malarkey really this difficult? Who knows? Uh, I think it's a lot of it is based around how you are as well and I've if I'm if I'm watching an NFL coach and they get a lot out of their athletes and the sessions look amazing and they're, they're shouting and they're doing all this stuff and it's they're very vocal but if I tried to do that that wouldn't fit my personality and that I'd, I'd just come across as a bit of a fraud so I think yeah. you, should, you should pick the bits that apply don't you so yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um, and if you, again, I appreciate we've like, you know, we've gone about S&C for business, S&C for parents, boxers. Um, we kind of chucked a whole load at you. Um, if you wanted there to be one key take home uh, from this podcast, what would you like it to be? I'd say measure and feedback. That's, that's because without measuring whether and 
without measuring what you're doing, whether that's RPE, whether it's training load, whether it's whether it's how fast they are, whether it's how strong they are, what they're shifting on the barbell, whatever. If you're not measuring it, then how do you know if you're getting better? And you've got you've got to track these things as well. And uh, the other thing is, once you've got this information, feed it back because that's been that's been massive for for me because if you can get an athlete in a position where they draw confidence from the feedback and you identify what feedback they like as well, I think you're onto a winner with them. Sorry, I had a phone call coming through. Sorry, Todd. That's all right, mate. That's all right. I should have let you go like a couple of minutes ago. You would have been able to take it. Um, Just want to say thanks very much, Tommy. That's been absolutely awesome. And as I said, it always ends up being the way that I ping a million and one questions and only about three of them are sent over in the initial document. So uh, thank you for navigating that as well as you have done, mate. I've really enjoyed that. No worries. Thanks so much for having me on. I really, I really appreciate it. Like um, it's, it's been, it's been a good few weeks because I've had a good few chances to talk to different people like yourself and like-minded coaches. And I think what you're doing with this podcast and what you're doing in terms of working with youth athletes as well and what, wanting to deliver best practice to them is, is absolutely amazing. So keep up the good work yourself. I'll do my best, man. It'd be good to have you maybe as a part two and talk more about your game sharp performance stuff because obviously we've gone very boxing heavy uh, with this one, but I feel like we may be going another hour if I dug into that properly. So maybe we'll have to have a part two on the cards. Nice one. uh, Thanks very much. Cheers. My pleasure, mate. Take it easy. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Platform to Perform podcast with myself, Todd Davidson, and today's guest, Tommy Monday. If you feel you're in a position to support the podcast, head over to my Patreon page, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P Coaching, where subscribing will give you unlimited access to all my educational content in relation to strength and conditioning, programs I've designed to help keep people sane through lockdown, including all of my calisthenics kids content I've delivered so far, and a variety of programs designed to improve strength, confidence, and movement skill without the need for having a gym. If you want to check out more of my content, then head over to www.p2pcoaching.co.uk or use my social media details to get in touch if you have any questions and I'll leave those in the show notes. Thank you for listening and I will catch you in the next episode.